Join me, please, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. Please open to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 to 10. We'll read from verse 1 to understand the context of our passage today. Hebrews chapter 9, we'll begin at verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second only, the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the one true gospel, and thank you that from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you have clearly explained this gospel. We thank you, Father, that you have given us 10,000 precepts of your word to understand this true gospel. Thank you for our belief in it. We pray that you will build us up in this true gospel, this true faith, and may we be courageous with great conviction to proclaim this wherever we go. In Christ's name, amen. The relationship of the New Testament to the Old Testament. What is the relationship of the New Testament to the Old Testament? This is a perplexing issue for many people whenever they read the Old Testament. Because they read the New Testament and they seem to get the point or the basic point of it. At least they think they get the basic point of the New Testament. But when they read the Old Testament, somehow it perplexes the people who read the Old Testament. That is the pages from Genesis to the book of Malachi. From Genesis to Malachi, when they read the Old Testament, they wonder, what, why is this here? What is here? Yes, they understand Genesis starts by explaining God creating the world. And then we hear of certain major people like Abraham and Moses and David. We hear of them and we read of them. But what is it basically about? Is it merely a history book? Is it merely some background? Is it merely saying that God tried out? He did the best he could with a group of people called Israel, the nation of Israel. He did what he could with them. And then he gave up on them and tried it a new way. Is that what the New Testament is all about? What is the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament? Well, it's not very difficult. The whole Bible is about Christ. The whole Bible is about Christ. Jesus taught that. The apostles taught that. That the whole of the scriptures is about him. So if the whole of the scriptures 
is about Jesus Christ. From Genesis to Revelation, it is about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Then, the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied or predicted His coming, and the apostles of the New Testament announce His arrival, what He came to do. The prophets predicted or prophesied what would happen in the future, future to them. They explained it, they wrote about it in many, many ways, sometimes in figures of speech, sometimes by direct statements, they would talk about the coming of Christ. And then the apostles, once Christ came, they wrote about what he came and did, what he accomplished. That's what the New Testament is about. It's not very difficult, actually. It shouldn't be very difficult because that's what Jesus and the apostles said time and again throughout the New Testament that this is what it was all about. So now when we come to Hebrews chapter 9, this is the same argument of the apostle. And he's focused in this chapter specifically on the rituals of the Old Testament. The rituals of the Old Testament based on the tabernacle of Moses and then based on the temple of Solomon. The tabernacle and the temple, what was the purpose of these rituals? What was the purpose of the rituals? The sacrifices of the animals, the various kinds of furniture, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the lampstand, the table of showbread. What was the purpose of all these and other objects that were there in the holy place? What was the purpose of them? Well, he tells us quite explicitly. He says in chapter 9, verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this. And in verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time. He says the Holy Spirit was signifying many things and symbolizing many things about Christ. He wasn't telling the people, the Holy Spirit was not teaching the people, whether the prophets or the people generally, he was not teaching them to put their hope in those things that if they did them, they would be saved from their sins. If they did them, then they then only would they have eternal life. Whether they did them perfectly or partially, that they would have salvation. He was not teaching them that. That is the basic point of this passage. The Holy Spirit was symbolizing things. Therefore, symbolizing what? Symbolizing Christ. Signifying Christ. Typifying Christ. Illustrating Christ. That's what He was doing. He was not teaching them to put their hope in the death of an animal. He was not teaching them to put their hope in lighting the incense. He was not teaching them to put their hope in the blood of anything or anyone, even a human. He was not teaching them to do anything like that. He was teaching them to understand these things as illustrations of Christ. Let's continue in our study of this argument that he makes in our chapter, chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 6. After explaining the various pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, he says, Now when these things have been thus prepared. When these things have been thus prepared. Now don't overlook that statement. He's saying that they were prepared. They were established. They were ordained by God to be made and to be placed there in the tabernacle. So, they have been prepared sufficiently. 
adequately because God commanded Moses and then Moses had his workers, his masons and others, his tailors, in order to make whatever needed to be made. Moses did it just as God told him to do it. All that the Lord commanded him, Moses did. You can see this refrain especially in Exodus chapter 40 and various verses throughout chapter 40, right when the tabernacle was about to receive the glory of God in it, it says, Moses did just as the Lord commanded. Moses did just as the Lord commanded. So Moses had well prepared the tabernacle. But even after it was well prepared, God is saying, I want it here. It is necessary for it to be here. But don't put your hope in it. He's saying it was well prepared, but even though it was well prepared, notice some other issues, notice some other actions, notice some other statements, notice some other prophecies, notice some other things God says about this tabernacle that should make you understand that there is nothing deficient in and of itself in God making a tabernacle. The deficiency is in our misunderstanding. The deficiency is in us not knowing that the tabernacle was meant to be a bridge, a bridge to Christ. That is the issue. And that's why he says, he begins to say, after he says it was thus prepared, it was well prepared, now we must understand the contrast. It was well prepared by God through Moses and his workers. It was well prepared. But then notice, he says, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. What God told the priests to do, they are doing it, they're doing it continually. He says continually here, but then in verse 7 he mentions once a year. There were various activities that the priests were commissioned to do, and only the priests were allowed to do it, only they were supposed to do these things. And they had activities every day. Every day. They had activities from morning to night. They had activities every day. They even had special activities or special divine worship that they were to perform once a week, such as on the Sabbath day. They even had rituals to perform and sacrifices to offer on the Sabbath day. They had weekly sacrifices. They would also have monthly sacrifices, new moon sacrifices. Every month, they had to offer certain offerings to the Lord in order for them to fulfill the commandments of God. They even had seasonal sacrifices. Seasonal, that means such as on uh, Passover, such as on uh, whenever there was the feast of the ingathering, that is when they had a harvest. They were to celebrate the harvest before the Lord. And there were offerings that they were to offer to God based on their harvest. So on. There were these seasonal kinds of things they needed to do. And then once a year, once a year, uniquely, as he says in verse verses 7, or verse 7, he says that once a year, the high priest was to go into the most holy place with the blood of the animals. He was supposed to enter there once a year on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 explains that. So he's saying here, 
The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. Now, the outer tabernacle, this is where they would be constantly. They would be there every day, every week, every month, and every season or every special festival. They would be there in the outer tabernacle. That's where they were constantly. And then, in verse 7, they would enter the priest, the chief priest or the highest priest. He would go there in the second place, in the most holy place, the holy of holies, verse 7. But into the second, into that inner sanctuary, the high priest enters once a year. Once a year, not without taking blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So, the high priest would only go there once a year. He could not go there every day. He could not there, go there on a whim. He had to go there only on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. And even then, he had to prepare himself. He had to offer sacrifices before he entered the most holy place. He had to offer sacrifices for himself, for his family, for the nation. He would have to do this in the right way, following every step, and then he could enter with blood, not his blood, but the blood of animals. He would enter the holy place, the most holy place. So, by making this statement, should it not have been clear to the people? Should it not have been clear to the people that if we have to constantly offer these sacrifices, how could it be that the sacrifices suffice for my salvation? If one animal sacrifice suffices for my salvation, then why do I have to keep on offering animals? Or if a thousand animals suffice for my salvation, let me offer the thousand, and then why do I have to offer any more? Why do I have to offer any more? Or if the one sacrifice, or the special, the most special sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, annually, when the high priest goes into the most holy place, if that is what's necessary, then why is it done every year? You see, it's these sacrifices are continual. And why are they done all the time? They're done all the time to be a clear illustration that they do not satisfy the wrath of God for my sins. They are not the satisfaction for my redemption. They're not. They are merely illustrations. We're supposed to obey the illustration, but we're not supposed to put our hope and faith in those illustrations. We are supposed to put our faith in Christ because the, those death, the death of the animals signified Christ. That's why John the Baptist, John the Baptist said when he, Jesus first began his ministry, he saw Jesus in John 1, 29, and he called out and he said, Behold, or look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist understood this point. He understood this fact that the death of a lamb, an unblemished lamb, not a blind one, not a lame one, not a diseased lamb, but an unblemished lamb was supposed to be offered by the worshiper on the altar. And that unblemished lamb signified the fact that Jesus was unblemished or sinless. He was perfect. He had, had no sin. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, we should know, you should know, not to put your trust 
in anyone or anything, but only in Christ. It's obvious. It's obvious. And also notice in verse 7, he says, This priest, the high priest, would offer sacrifices for himself. Offer sacrifices for himself. Why? Because he was a sinner. So why should one sinner put his hope in another sinner? Why should one sinner put his hope in another sinner? No way. That should be obvious. If my neighbor cannot be perfect, why, if he cannot be perfect, why should I put my hope in him? And if my neighbor cannot, let alone an animal. Isn't an animal a lesser being than a human? A person is more valuable in the sight of God than an animal. So why should we think that an animal would suffice? We should not think an animal will suffice, and we should not think a human will suffice. Psalm 51 Psalm 51, 16. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David says, David the prophet, the man of God, he says, you do not delight in sacrifice. You don't delight. You don't want that for my salvation. If you wanted that for my salvation, I would have given it to you. You do not. Uh, you are not pleased with burnt offerings. If you were pleased with burnt offerings, I would have given that to you for my salvation. But that's not what you want, he says. The same with a human, our fellow human beings. Psalm 49, Psalm 49, verse 7. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever that he should live on eternally that he should not undergo decay. Here too, the prophet says, no man can by any means redeem his brother. There is no way. Your neighbor cannot save your soul. Your neighbor cannot die for your soul for your redemption, for your forgiveness, so that you possess eternal life, that you rise on the last day, resurrection, so that you never experience death. For your soul's redemption is costly. If it is costly, then it could only be paid by someone higher than a man, someone higher than a regular human being. It has to be the perfect God, man, Christ Jesus who was fully God and fully man without sin. It could only be by him. It could only be by him. And that's why he says in Psalm 40, yes, Jesus says, Jesus speaks these words to the Father. In Psalm 40, verse 6, 6 to 8, the Son of God speaks these words to the Father, written by David, the prophet. Psalm 40, verse 6, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus says to the Father, You do not desire any of these sacrifices. You don't desire them, but you desire for me to come, to come into the world. Because in the scroll of the book, it is written of me.
to do God's will. And Jesus delights to do God's will. That means in the law of Moses and onward, Jesus was predicted. He was prophesied. The prophets said that Christ would come into the world to die like this. The animals only signify, only symbolize the coming of Christ. That's why Jesus says these words in Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. Jesus' words are recorded. And how do we know? It is confirmed in Hebrews 10. If we read Hebrews 10, especially verses 5 to 7, Hebrews 10, 5 to 7, there the apostle says that these are the words of Christ, the Son of God, to the Father. And in fulfillment of these words, Jesus came into the world. So David wrote these words, and he knew, for he was a prophet. Acts 2, verses 30 and 31. He was a prophet and, got, and knew that God had sworn to him to seat one of his descendants upon the throne. So, if the high priest has to offer sacrifices for himself, he is not the means of salvation, and neither is the animal a means of salvation. It has to be Christ. We also see in Hebrews 9-7 that these sacrifices were for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The sins of the people committed in ignorance. There are two ways to look at this. Among the commentators, the sins of ignorance, this may be in contrast to the willful sins for which there is no sacrifice, which we would see in Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. For example, it says, Hebrews 10, 26, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. Sins of ignorance may be, according to one interpretation, those sins that are not done after receiving full knowledge of the truth and then saying, I reject it. Receiving it and then rejecting it. It may be merely sins, the other sins apart from this rejection of the truth of Christ. Or, sins of ignorance may be in reference to any and all sin. Because there is a sense in which all sins are sins of ignorance. When it says sins, sins of ignorance, it may be that it's referring to any and all sin. Not just to certain sins. After all, in a sense, if we say sins of ignorance as reference to any sin, there is a certain uh, level of knowledge we have both in our conscience and also by the word of God and in even the way others are by common knowledge and common sense that there are certain things we ought not to do right we know that so in a sense there are no sins of ignorance but in another sense there are sins of ignorance in that in every time we sin we are putting a blinder over our eyes every time we sin we are denying some reality so we're pursuing it headlong, 
because we are denying the truth, the reality, the facts of the matter. So it is ignorant in that way too. This is what the high priest would do to offer sacrifices for this purpose. However, was it effectual for the people? Did it actually benefit the people? And the answer is no. That's what he continues to explain in verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. He says, the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed. The holy place. The people generally, and even the Levites, could not go into the most holy place. Only the priests could go into the most holy place. So, what did that most holy place signify? It has to signify something. It could not signify that only the males among the descendants of Aaron, who were qualified, could enter the most holy place because they were the only ones who could get to heaven. How could that be? That could not be at all. After all, there were many righteous men and women in the Old Testament who never entered the most holy place, and yet they were redeemed. So what did it mean? What did it signify? It signified the fact that as long as we do these rituals in the most holy place, we have to anticipate, we have to expect, we have to look to the future to the coming of Christ, so that when He does come, He will fulfill the significance of that most holy place. That's why it says that when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It says that the veil of the temple, this veil that was a division between the holy place and the most holy place, the holy place where the Levites could enter, and then the most holy place where only the qualified priests of Aaron's line could enter once a year with blood, not their own blood, that they could enter there, that veil, that division, that was torn in two when Jesus died on the cross from top to, to bottom, which means it was a miracle of God. It wasn't somebody who took hold of it from the bottom and tore it and made it tear to the top. No, it tore from top to bottom by a miracle of God, to signify the fact that Jesus is the one who, who gave us access to that most holy place. Notice, Hebrews 10.19 says, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10, 19-22. There the apostle says that this veil was a representation of the flesh of Christ, the body of Christ. Now that this body was offered on the altar, now this veil is torn so that it signifies the fact that we now have access to the most holy place. And who is in that most holy place? God, the Father. 
God the Father is there. Remember, it says in Exodus 25, it says that Moses would enter that most holy place in order to hear the words of God. So access to God is through the body of Christ, through the death of the body of Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit was signifying. Now we may ask, was the Holy Spirit actually at work in the Old Testament? Was the Holy Spirit actually in the prophets of the Old Testament and in the saints of the Old Testament? Was the Holy Spirit present whenever the prophets and the priests preached the words of God? Was the Holy Spirit there? Was the Holy Spirit actively engaged in saving people in the Old Testament? And the answer is yes. It is a definitive yes. For example, it says in 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. David says these words. He says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. David says this when he's writing these words, which means David was conscious of the fact that that the Spirit spoke by him, and the Spirit of the Lord was speaking to him, giving him the words to write. He wasn't in a daze, he wasn't uh, bewildered, and he wasn't perplexed, it wasn't like that. He wasn't trying to figure out, is this from God or is this from Satan? Is this my own imagination, or is this just an idea that I'm repeating from one of my friends that I heard the other day? He wasn't confused like that, he knew he was writing the words of the Spirit of God. David knew that. He, in fact, says it in his own words. Furthermore, we've got Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 20. Nehemiah 9, 20. Remember, Nehemiah, he is living about 450 B.C. This is very close to the end of recorded history in the Old Testament. He's writing at the very end of the period. So Nehemiah is explaining what happened in the past. What happened in the past throughout the Old Testament. He says, And you gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. God did not leave the people helpless and hopeless, he gave them the Holy Spirit to instruct them, His good Holy Spirit to instruct them. They weren't left alone. Verse 30, Nehemiah 9.30 However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your Spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. God's Spirit, through God's prophets, warned the people. God's Spirit, through God's prophets, warned the people. That means when the prophets preached, the Holy Spirit was preaching through them. When the prophets preached, the Holy Spirit preached through them. Nehemiah knows that this is true, and all of those who are praying this prayer, Nehemiah chapter 9, with Nehemiah, they all know that that's true. And that's what they announce here. They know that the Holy Spirit was always at work in the prophets. Furthermore, Isaiah chapter 
59. Isaiah chapter 59. Here Isaiah declares his, uh, the, the promises of God. He says, 59, 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. He declares that the Spirit of God and the Word of God that is on the people of God will continue upon their descendants, meaning their spiritual descendants, from now and forever. So they had hope. They had understanding. They had insight. They knew that they needed the Spirit. They had access to the Spirit in order to save them from their sins. And lastly, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. 110. As to this salvation, and which salvation? Our salvation. The salvation that we know, that we enjoy. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. He teaches us here that the prophets were prophesying, predicting, telling in advance that this grace would come to us, that we would see this, we would experience it. That is meaning the first century disciples and the apostles, that they would see this happen. And they were eager to see it and experience it themselves. They knew that it was coming. They just did not know which person it would be when that person came in history. They wanted to see that person, to touch that person, to hear that person in his presence. They did not know the time, because it says what person or time. That's what they did not know. But God gave that gift to John the Baptist to know. God gave that gift to Anna, the prophetess, to know. God gave that gift to Simeon, the righteous man, to know. He gave that gift for them to know, to be able to touch, experience, hold in their hands. He gave that gift to them, he, but he did not give it to all the other prophets before them. That's what they wanted and longed to experience. And who explained it all to them? Who declared it all and explained it all to them? 1 Peter 1.11 confirms, it says, the Spirit of Christ within them. The Spirit of Christ. The Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He's known by these various names. This Holy Spirit who was in the prophets, he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They knew that the symbols were depicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They knew that all of the prophecies were explaining the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. Back to our verse in Hebrews 9, verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying these truths. That's what he is showing. Showing that everything that is instituted by God under Moses has a time of fulfillment. It will not be the ultimate end. The end is in Christ. And further, verse 9, he says, 
which is a symbol for the present time. A symbol for the present time. Well, who's the one living under the symbols? The people of the Old Testament, the saints of the Old Testament. They are living under the symbols for their fulfillment in the present time, meaning in the time of Christ and his apostles. They looked forward to what the symbols would mean or would experience in their own time. Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the roll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. That's Christ speaking to the Father. And the Apostle says, The things of the Old Testament were shadows. They were symbols of what was to come. The sacrifices themselves were impossible for their salvation. It had to be the sacrifice of Christ. Now one may also ask, okay, it says it clearly here in Hebrews 9. And now, we can say so definitively and clearly now. However, was it also clearly known to the people of the Old Testament? Or was it clearly preached to the people of the Old Testament? Did the prophets clearly tell the people what these symbols meant? And I submit to you that the prophets did. The prophets not only said that these were symbols and signs, that they were patterns of something better and eternal fulfilled in Christ. They not only said that, they not only believed that, they preached it. They preached it to the people. If they did not preach it that way, then they would have been meager and worthless preachers. What preacher understands some truth about salvation, about his own salvation, and does not tell somebody else? He would be a worthless preacher. If he understands the truth of salvation and does not convey it to the people who hear him, the people who hear him must also experience what the preacher knows. So they must have been, the prophets, the God's servants, the prophets, must have been those who not only comprehended it, but also communicated it well to the people. And then those who believed among the people would have been saved just as the prophets. Now, some proof of this. Some proof of this. Our first is in Exodus 25. Exodus 25. God tells Moses the following. Exodus 25, verse 9. According to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct. He calls it a pattern to Moses. Pattern. So we have to ask, pattern of what? It must be pattern of Christ or pattern of heavenly things. Exodus 25, verse 40. The last verse. Exodus 25, 40. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which was shown to you on the mountain. Make sure you make it that way. Exodus 26. Verse 30, 2630. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan, which you have been shown in 
the mountain. Exodus 27, Exodus 27 and verse 8. You shall make it hollow with planks as it was shown to you in the mountain, so they shall make it. Further, further we have in Numbers chapter 8. Numbers chapter 8. Now this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold. From its base to its flowers, it was hammered work. According to the pattern which the Lord had showed Moses, so he made the lampstand. Numbers 8 and verse 4. Let's continue. First Chronicles. First Chronicles. This is David. Before his death, he is explaining to Solomon what Solomon should do with the temple, the temple that Solomon will build. This is in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 11. 28, 11. Then David gave to his son Solomon the plan of the porch of the temple, its buildings, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, and the room for the mercy seat. And the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord and for all the surrounding rooms for the storehouses of the house of God and for the storehouses of the dedicated things. Did you see there? Verse 11 and, and in verse 12, David calls these things the plan or the prophet here calls these things the plan, the plan twice. And then notice in verse 19, after explaining more about all of the utensils and the furniture, Verse 19, 1 Chronicles 28, 19. David said, All this the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me. All the details of this pattern. Pattern, the same word that Moses used, used. Here, he calls it a plan, and he calls it a pattern. And not only is he calling what he's about to make, what Solomon is about to make, the temple, a plan or pattern. He says in verse 19, all this the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me. God made David understand. When we don't understand anything spiritual, who's going to teach us? Who's going to teach us? It's going to be God. The Spirit of God is going to teach us. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. 2 Timothy 2, 7. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Psalm 119, verse 19. If we're not understanding something, who's going to make us understand? And in this case, not only do we know that it is the Lord who makes understand, David is aware that the Lord made him understand. So David understood. So if David is a good prophet, he's going to teach people the meaning, the true meaning of these things. He'll teach Solomon. And Solomon was a prophet also. He'll teach others. So this is the way of God in the Old Testament. The Spirit was signifying this. The Spirit was teaching them this. That these things were pointing to Jesus Christ. That's what he signified. That's what he taught. So they were consciously aware in the Old Testament of the coming of Christ and the significance of the symbols. Therefore, back to Hebrews 9 and verse 9. Hebrews 9, 9. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. 
Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. He says here, these things could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience. He says further, we read below in verse, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And as we read before in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, verse 2, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. When he says consciousness of sins, he means a guilty conscience because of sins. Because that guilty conscience will be removed in Christ. That's why it says in Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If the death of the animal would work, spiritually speaking, then why did the people who did have the death of the animal not have a free conscience, not have assurance of salvation? Why did they not have that? They did not have that if they put their hope only in a bloody animal. But if they did not put their hope in the bloody animal, but in the significance of the bloody animal, that is in the bloody Christ. If they put their hope in the blood of Christ, then their conscience would have been freed. It would have become good instead of evil. Instead of guilty, it would have been innocent or declared innocent, declared righteous and not guilty. And that could only be in Christ. Now think about this. How can we imagine that something physical is going to help us spiritually? Have we thought about that? That's what his argument is right here in verses 9 and 10. How could the physical help the soul, the spirit? We have to have the physical be a bridge to the spiritual for it to help us spiritually. So if the physical is going to be a bridge, just like a parable is, all the parables of Christ, right, were a bridge explaining something physical to help us understand something spiritual because our hope is not that the sower or the farmer goes out to sow seed, right? We don't put our hope in a farmer scattering seed. We put our hope in what that means, spiritually speaking. We don't put our hope in food at a marriage feast, right? Or that we were invited to it or that we were seated at the table near the host. We're not putting our hope in that. We're not putting our hope in food. We're not putting our hope in being present there. We're putting our hope in what that signifies in a parable. And that's his point here. How could it be that the worshiper could be perfect in conscience, inside, inside? How could it be perfect in conscience when we're dealing with animal sacrifices, gifts and sacrifices? We're dealing with food, drink, and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Why put your hope in those things? People do put their hope in those things. That's the problem. That's why he has to be so elaborate here and throughout his letter, especially in chapters 5 and 10, he is elaborately explaining one example after another, one argument after another to say, don't keep your eyes fixed on the physical. 
Don't put your hope on material things. Don't do that. Believe in what the physical or material things signify, symbolize. Put your hope in that, not in the physical. And then he puts them together as food, drink, and various washings. Food, drink, and various washings. Yes, God did say in one way or another that there were clean and unclean foods, but temporarily. To teach the people to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, as it says in Leviticus 11. To give them a further illustration to teach them the difference between what is holy and what is profane or unholy. To teach them a further way. But that was only for a time. The same thing with drink. They were permitted at times to drink one thing or another or even to offer drink offerings to the Lord, which would have been wine. To offer these to the Lord. And then in certain cases, like the Nazarite vow, the one who was under the vow could not partake of wine for a temporary time. And in the case of certain exceptions, like Samson, until he died for his whole life, they were not to do that. But otherwise they could do that. But why these distinctions? Only temporarily. And even, he says, various washings. Various washings. The utensils were supposed to be washed in a certain way. The body was supposed to be washed in a certain way. The bodies of the priests and of the people were supposed to be dipped or baptized. That's our word here, actually. Translated washings, but it is plural, baptisms, in verse 10. Utensils and other things and people were baptized for certain purposes. So what was the purpose of the physical? The physical food, the physical drink, the physical baptisms, washings. To be a bridge to the spiritual. Not for us to put our hope in the food, the drink, and the washings, or the sacrifices. Not like that. And people who do are not benefited. People who do are not benefited. They're not benefited before God. Notice Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 9. Hebrews 13, verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. There he warns them, when they put their hope on the physical things, then they are not benefited. They are occupied. By occupied, he means preoccupied, obsessed, and they're not benefited because they're not being strengthened by grace. Grace is the means of spiritual strength, not the physical. The spiritual grace of God by the spirit of grace. And finally, verse 10 says, Hebrews 9.10, that these were imposed until a time of reformation. Imposed until a time of reformation. They were an obligation. They were an imposition. They were supposed to do these things until it was to, to be reformed. By reformed, he means abolished, because that's what he said in chapter 8. By re reformation, he says in chapter 8, verse 13, after quoting the new covenant, he says, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. This means that when Jesus came, and when the apostles 
Paul and Peter and John and our apostle here in Hebrews, when they're writing and preaching and saying, all of this is fulfilled, the old covenant that is the Mosaic ritual covenant is to be abolished, they were not false teachers. They were not false teachers. And they should not have been surprised by it. The people of Israel should not have been surprised by this fact that the old would be abolished, or the first covenant would be abolished. They should not. Why? Because Jeremiah preached it in Jeremiah 31. In 600 BC, 600 years before John the Baptist, 600 years before Christ, 600 years before Paul and John and Peter and all the rest, 600 years before Jeremiah, the true prophet of God, right? His work is right there in our Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He's right there. He, and he is the most prolific of the prophets. He has more words than the other prophets. So, Jeremiah, the true prophet, said, a time is going to come when it is reformed, when it is abolished, when the rituals are not to be practiced anymore. So, if that happens, why should we be surprised? Why should we be confused? Why should we say, oh, no, no, Christ plus something else? No, it's only Christ. Christ and Christ alone. Because the time of Reformation has arrived. It has arrived, and because it has arrived, put hope in no one else or in nothing else. Only in Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to give us this kind of resolve to focus on Christ, to believe in Christ, the Word of Christ, the Spirit of Christ, all that is Christ to the glory of God the Father. Not our own flesh, not the world, the flesh, or the devil, not anyone else, not any, and not any other religious authority, but only Christ. May we do so for our salvation, for our forgiveness, for our hope everything that is good and right for all eternity. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.